You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey y'all, spooky season is here, and if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. In the darkness beneath a ruined castle, in a long-forgotten family crypt, so worn by countless rains, that its once ornate stoned carved crest has become an unrecognizable blur. There lies an unremarkable stone sarcophagus, inside of which is an ancient wooden casket, and after long ages its rough-hewn lid slowly opens, and a bony hand its fingers corrupted by the molder of the grave, reaches out and grasps around until it finds what it seeks. A podcasting microphone. Hey, we're back. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm your host, Blake Smith. In this episode, Dr. Karen Stolzno and I interview Dr. Darren Nash about his new book, Hunting Monsters. We plan to return to our regular episode schedule, or as regular as Monster Talk ever manages, in April of this year. But when I heard that Darren Nash's new book was out, I couldn't wait another month to share it with you guys. I know a lot of you are like me and really love books, maybe even a bit too much, if such a thing is possible. So we're just going to get right into this episode and talk about this new book. A link to the book and to Darren's great blog and podcast will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org. After the interview, I'll catch you up on what's coming up next from Monster Talk. Today we're talking with Darren Nash, who's the author of the Tetrapod Zoology blog, which is currently hosted by Scientific American. 
He's the co-host of the Tet Zoo podcast, which you should all be listening to. And he's an author, our contributor to many books. And today we're discussing his latest book, which is his first in well over a month, Hunting Monsters, Cryptozoology and the Reality Behind the Myths. Welcome back to Monster Talk, Dr. Darren Daish. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Hi, Darren. Hi. <laughs> so let's get started with Cash for Questions. <laughs> it's an in, that's an in-joke. It is! <laughs> so, but speaking of Cash, I think uh, our listeners will be delighted at the price of your newest book. Uh, but it's only available on the Kindle right now. So how many copies do you need to sell in order to get corporeal versions released? <laughs> ah, good question. I don't know the answer. I don't know if the company, uh, the, the publishers, know the answer either. Uh, the the woolly answer is if it does well enough as an ebook, then it will be released as a Mm. dead tree book so we shall see are you going to offer it in other formats too like nook and ibooks so far as i understand yes i mean it's only been out at the time of speaking for about a week and okay. so far it's only available on amazon it will be available uh on uh through, through other digital retailers and uh remember you don't have to have a kindle to to read an ebook i mean you can download a kindle app for any device which right. i didn't know until i did that so i've been reading on my phone and my pc so uh yeah let's see yeah congratulations so it, yeah exactly <laughs> thanks it's only it's uh i think it's only 6.99 in the u.s and i don't know how to convert that to metric but it's uh it's a very reasonable price <laughs> 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 <clears throat> Yeah, it's like £2.50 or something, which is as much as a large bag of, I was going to say crisps, but I realise you call them potato chips, chips or something. Yeah. Chips, yeah. Well, we, we understand crisps here. Yeah. Well, especially Australians do. Yeah, so, yes, the two of you understand that yeah, you're, you're saying the wrong word. It. I get it. Okay. <laughs> the language is called English. <laughs> so uh, we want to get started with the, the meaty question. Why is it imperative that monster lovers make your book part of their digital library immediately? <laughs> That's an excellent question. Thank you for asking. Um, yeah, uh, well, it's dead cheap. So what do you got to lose, first of all? Uh, secondly, I, I see it as part of uh, one of several books that are part of this, this uh, pro-science, skeptic-led movement in cryptozoology. Which uh, we we all we all know of these these books. There's an enormous number of them that are uh, on the credulous side of, of uh, cryptozoological investigation. Prepare. I, I don't really offer you know that much deconstruction of uh, the the phenomena and the processes behind them. Intellectually um, shoddy. Yes. Yes. That's, <laughs> well, they that's, tell the stories in the folklore, don't they? And yes, and that's about it. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and um, there's there's a lot, there's so much stuff to to discuss. Like there's a whole there's a whole list of things that I wanted to talk about, and I've been looking uh, for an, an avenue for for a long time. Uh, you know, an excuse to to cover these subjects. For example, as someone who's very interested, obviously, you know, uh, evolution, speculative evolution, the creatures that people come up with in fiction. Um, Cryptozoology, I see as very much a part of that. It's it's kind of like a, a, an excuse for people to invent creatures, and I think this is like a fundamental human thing, a thing that people have been doing for as long as we've been around. We kind of invent creatures, and they become part of our psyche, part of you know folklore, part of culture. And a thing I uh, discuss quite a lot in the book is is the concept of cryptozoology uh, as as culture. And to that end, you know, I think that that. Okay, I'm not a trained 
um, folklorist or a, you know historian, but you can marry these ideas about about cryptozoology as as culture with an evolutionary perspective because many of the creatures that are now in the cryptozoological literature have got a, almost a life of their own because people have invented a creature and as they've tried to rationalize it within the scientific paradigm people have um, you know uh, constructed these his- complex historical narratives uh, what what kind of creature it is how it's evolved its its background uh, and even its ecology its behavior um a lot of the cryptozoological literature and literature in the broader sense, as in you know uh, articles online as, as well as published stuff, there are there are a whole bunch of cryptozoologists who talk at length about cryptids as real flesh and blood animals with a with a biological background, but there hasn't been much, if any, skeptical evaluation of of that, any kind of reasoned discussion of that, and uh, I, I think that's needed. And um, yeah, that's something. That's something fairly novel in this book. hasn't really been explored that much before. But, you know, I think our listeners are probably uh, they're going to be more exposed to skeptical books about cryptozoology than your average uh, monster fan. But yeah. What makes your book different from the other skeptical books that are out there? Well, uh, the- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have good answers for this, but I, I just you know, not again. I, I might need you to help me with this one because because uh, yeah. Um, well, I say, starting with the price. No, sorry. <laughs> 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 no I, I. So I. I don't want to answer the question I just asked you, but I, I would say that uh, having read your book, the, well, most of it, I, I, I did have to skim a bit just to make it for the interview. Sure. Here, but, but you, uh, you bring up some really interesting ideas that I have not seen in other places about plausible explanations for some of these monsters, not just wish fulfillment sort of explanations. Um, and you go into a great deal of detail that normally one would have to look deep into a uh, cryptozoology uh, sort of bulletin board to get this level of nuance. Uh, and uh, you, you, you uh, I think, do a very good job of bringing a scientific uh, bearing and your own paleontological training uh, to bear on these topics. So that's my well, take on it. And I 699. So <laughs> <laughs> that too, and I think towards the end of the book, where you're talking about some of the psychological aspects of belief in cryptozoology, uh, I think that a lot of skeptical books don't treat those aspects. And yeah, don't uh, yeah. forget your own illustrations. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Got so few, yeah. Thank you. A few, few of my own little pictures in there for many of which were done for other projects, but um, recycled here. Yes. Um, I mean, I've got a combination of a, a list of things. I mean, I think, as, as you say, this this kind of detailed uh, attempt to ration this discussion of attempts to rationalise cryptids as zoological uh, as as real animals. Uh, hasn't hasn't really been done much before. Obviously, I've got some some new interpretations, or at least some new um, uh, syntheses of, of of recently proposed explanations for the identities behind. You know, I I quite, I quite like it when you have these pieces of evidence, like monster photographs, uh, photographs of uh, sea monster carcasses, and we can actually you know use. Um, a, a grounded scientific perspective to, to try and to try and evaluate those. Uh, that's obviously something I've written quite a lot about on, um, on tetrapod zoology. I have various articles online about interpreting eyewitness evidence, um, interpreting sorry bits, photographic bits of evidence, and, and carcass stories and so on. I've got a lot of that stuff in there. Some of that, some of that will be novel. And um, while I have, the, I mean, a, a plus point of this this book is I have 
covered uh, a diversity of cryptids. I mean, you've got your classics in there like lake, mon- lake monsters, sea monsters, crypto hominids, anomalous primates, whatever you want to call them, Australian cryptids like the Queensland tiger and the bunyip and so on. It's, it's quite common for books to cover that, that, kind, of, uh, that kind of diversity. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Loxton and Prothero's uh, Abominable Science, for example. They did this chapter by chapter treatment, didn't they? But um, yeah, no, I think I think the level of analysis that that you have here, this these, these new interpretations of cases, uh, yes, that's that's novel to to an audience. Um, well, I think the more skeptical books, the better about this topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, in it, I was I was listing them the other day. There's. There's not, there's not really that many. I mean, there's uh, you could oh, count on two hands maybe the the, the good sceptical analyses. Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of mythical or creatures that we label as being mythical, like unicorns and, and mermaids. Um, would we still consider those to be cryptids? Because when I think of cryptids, I tend to think of ones that like uh, Bigford and the Loch Ness Monster, and maybe there's some kind of hierarchy there that some might be more plausible than others. But with a lot of these legendary creatures do we still call those cryptids or not well yeah technically we don't do we because technically a cryptid is an animal for which there is uh, eyewitness or uh, evidence of some kind eyewitness evidence testimonial evidence which pertains to an animal as yet unrecognized by science but i think this is it, it is it is kind of a, a fuzzy distinction where, where do you draw the line i mean if you look at a lot of the the classic cryptids um people are prepared to go back to accounts that that are like beyond beyond the limits of living people they're talking about legends and recollections of you know in the time of our father's father that those kinds of uh, anecdotes this is the case for sea monsters from medieval europe and uh uh, uh, mystery hominids you know man-shaped creatures from you know north america or remote asia and and it's, if you're going to do that, then there's a whole list of mystery creatures or alleged mystery creatures that we do discount. I mean, nobody today would discuss cryptozoology and talk about the possible existence of lake monsters and sea monsters and, and Bigfoot and Yeti and, and in the same breath talk about dragons. But that's because we have made an arbitrary decision at some point that we're going to exclude the creatures called dragons because we're pretty confident that they're not based on real animals. But But... I can't explain this particularly well, but my my vague feeling there is that we have made an arbitrary decision that we are we are going to exclude some mystery animals because we do now find them ridiculous. But that's a product of our own time. Michelle Merger and other researchers have argued that if you were, if you put yourself uh, imagine that you were alive in the late eighteen hundreds or in the mid eighteen hundreds, you could still be thinking of animals like unicorns and uh, and, and dragons as potentially real animals that might still await discovery in remote places. We know that people did think this was, you know, plausible. They did think there were dragon-like creatures that hadn't yet been discovered. Uh, you know, as in, I don't just mean animals like big monitor lizards. I mean giant uh, winged reptiles that lived in the mountains and carried off farm girls and such. Um, there, is, there is a real reason for, th- you know, there's strong reasons for thinking that people did did regard them as biologically plausible animals. So... Um, that's, you, you raise a very interesting point. Yeah, I, I do think I do think there's some a degree of fuzziness, arbitrariness, if that's well, a word. <laughs> maybe this is a silly question, but is there anyone who is researching unicorns and mermaids from a, a scientific perspective that you're aware of? <laughs> um, 
I well, yeah, I am aware of people who are looking at um, not unicorns, but I can tell you that there are flesh and blood cryptozoologists who, within recent years, have written about um, well creatures that they call mer people or or mermen. They they there are cryptozoologists who have honestly proposed that sightings of fish-tailed semi-humans or, or amphibious or aquatic semi-humans are actually based on real observations of real undiscovered animals. Have, have they done an aerial survey? <laughs> <laughs> There's, I, it's a little bit uh, I'm not really sure whether I should mention names, but uh, but there's there's a there's a notorious book written on um, uh, mystery primates of the world, written by two well-known cryptozoologists, and uh, and it proposes that the chupacabra and the lizard man and <laughs> a, a bunch of other uh, weird alleged uh, humanoid creatures are actually uh, descriptions of some kind of. Uh, mer beings, they call them mer beings. That's it. So you know, it's very PC. Mer oh, beings, yeah. mer people. <laughs> I think. I think with some of these cryptids, the ones that uh, seem to take their origin back to movies, we should start calling them scripteds. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. I just I'm, thought I'm of that after all these years. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> the transition yeah. from uh, yeah movie to uh, yeah to because it seems to be a, a recurring theme. I think they covered that in. Uh, the uh, Loxton Prothero book as well, the uh, impact potentially of the King yeah. Kong film on Nessie, for example. Um, but uh, let's talk about your book, which is only six ninety nine on Amazon, and a link to that will be in the show notes. Um, <laughs> or two ninety nine pounds. Or two ninety nine pounds um, or kilos or whatever. The uh, <laughs> the uh, you you do cover a lot of the classics in this book, like monsters. That if you buy a book on monsters, you're going to see these creatures. And uh, I'd like to talk about a few of those without spoiling the whole book. Uh, but uh, let's go with the, the 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 sighting of a sea monster from the Daedalus, the famous 1848 Daedalus encounter, one of the most uh, influential sea monster reports of all time. Um, yeah. Well, well what, what do you want to say about it? What I want to do is like. Uh, whet the appetite of the listener <laughs> who might be interested in buying this book, but who thinks, am I going to learn anything new, or can I just listen to Monster Talk? I, I would promise them they're going to learn something new. You've got a lot of great material in there, but yeah. I, I thought maybe uh, you could talk about what some of these uh, animals, we'll just go through a few of them, uh, what you think they might be. Yeah, well, well let's, let's say a little bit more about the, the Daedalus encounter, because I think it, together with the, the Valhalla uh, sighting of 1902 off the coast of Brazil, the, the Daedalus encounter is a truly pivotal sea monster account. It seemed to have a massive impact in terms of the sorts of creatures that people described. You've got to remember that between about the 1820s and the 1850s, this is the time when people are first learning about uh, animal plesiosaurs in, in particular, which are having a huge impact on uh, how people perceive life of the past. And the Daedalus creature uh, observed off the coast of N Natal, off the Atlantic coast of Africa, it's um, described as 
possibly being some giant long-bodied reptile-like creature with a with a big blunt head. And you have this pivotal exchange happening in newspapers and journals at the time between uh, people like, uh, well, most famously uh, Richard Owen, a famous Victorian um, naturalist, biologist, paleontologist. And he's saying that, oh, this, this can't be an undiscovered animal. It's got to be, they must have seen an elephant seal, a big seal that has been like been carried too far north on an iceberg or something and and you had other people including the uh, the famous captain mckay uh, primary witness saying that no there's no doubt this was we saw this at close enough range for it to be it was an, un, an undiscovered beast and we could see it with so much clarity he, he famously said that if it was a person of his acquaintance he would have known them he would have been able to recognize their their face and really important point there are these two famous I think they're woodcuts, these two famous illustrations that appeared in the Illustrated London News at the time. And whenever we think of this sighting now, we, we, we imagine those, uh, those particular illustrations. But v- very poorly known until recently is the fact that um, there's a, a first-hand uh, uh, illustration. The, 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 the famous illustrations that I've just mentioned were drawn by professional artists for a newspaper. They weren't done first-hand by Mackay, by a witness, but... A, another witness, Lieutenant Edgar Drummond, did illustrate uh, the creature from, I don't know if he did it at the time, but it was certainly you know, a first generation, uh, illustr- well, an illustration done by a witness rather than a, a retelling from, from a witness. And, and it depicts something completely different. It, it, the, the creature that Drummond drew looks really different from the, this classic illustration. It's far less impressive and it's different in some key details it shows a far lower creature with a kind of more pointed tip to the snouts and rather than being this massive hulking kind of rectangular shape it's it's a long and low kind of pointy thing with a i think it's got a a small portion coming out of the water and then then a gap and then a long and low pointed anterior section and uh, there's an interesting point there because you know we're we've we've all been relying on an illustration that does not depict a first-hand um, uh, observation. And a- as to what it is, I mean, I've always been of the opinion that we can't really know what it is. Um, I, I, I've, I've been prepared at times to consider it a you know, misidentification of you know, a huge piece of floating wood or something. Um, but while I was writing the book, this article by Gary Galbraith was was published and I guess we won't discuss that because that'll give everything away. It's already <laughs> people that know this stuff will already know it. I mean, it's it's already been discussed online quite a lot. But um, but Galbraith did propose an identification, which um, you know I I can completely agree with, and that's the that's the one I, I have I have gone with uh, gone with in the book. It can be identified as as a known animal, and this does fit precisely with Drummond's eyewitness sketch. It doesn't fit with the famous Illustrated London News sketch supervised by Mackay, but it does fit completely with with Drummond's sketch. Yeah, it's one of those things where we'll never know for sure, but I looked Mm. at that suggestion and then I went and looked at photos of the animal that they suggest, and wow, it's a pretty compelling argument if there's accuracy there, right? So... Yeah, it's kind of embarrassing that we'd all missed that beforehand. Yeah. But uh, (laughs) what do these things happen? How soon uh, was the sketch made after the sighting? I think it was um, within a very short time. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can't remember if that's known. 
Yeah, no, I can't remember. I, there's one unusual thing about Drummond's illustration is that I think it shows the the famous illustrated London news pictures show the ship in the background as if the witness was sat at sea looking at the monster with the ship behind it. And Drummond does a similar thing, almost as if that's a kind of uh, people can't help themselves but reminding people. Uh, maybe, they, maybe they did that to show that was the scale of the creature to, right. to, the, to the ship. But not that but, the creature necessarily had scales, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's on fire today. <laughs> well, we, it's been a long break, right? So. Yeah, you... All built mm. up, hey. What about um, Hugh Gray's uh, photo of Nessie? Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I really, I really love the Loch Ness monster photographs. I mean, uh, I'm not sure how many good ones there are. Good, good in in quotes. There, uh, there's there's kind of like fifteen to twenty famous Loch Ness monster photographs. Uh, the ones you see in you know virtually every single book, and um if uh, every single one of them you look into it you can uh, th- th- there's a list that are ambiguous and we're never going to know what they are but there's a there's a number where people have looked into them in some detail and we can now say what they were we know enough about the circumstances behind the people taking the photographs exactly where they were when they took the photographs um i spoke a lot with dick rayner well-known uh, loch ness investigator uh, while preparing the the lake monster chapter of this book and um the hugh gray photograph is it the think i think from 1933 is you know one of the famous one of the earliest uh, uh alleged nessie photographs um it shows this weird sinuous uh lump with kind of a vaguely s-shaped pointy end and a big bulky end it's quite high out of the water it casts a large shadow on the water you get the impression from the size of the ripples, and I've got. I think. I think we, we as in people, we have a general good intuitive feel for how big things are based on the, the appearance of the surface of the water. We do kind of have a natural feel for how big things are. This thing isn't gigantic, but it's not particularly small. It's middling. It's kind of like half the size of a person. That that kind of a size, I think. Mm. This weird shape, and it's blurry, and it appears to be double exposed. The the object is partly duplicated in the frame, and Look at the different Loch Ness Monster books. Now, every single Loch Ness Monster book, not every single one, most Loch Ness Monster books are written with an agenda. The author has decided that there's a specific identity, identification for the animal, which they prefer, and they are then picking and choosing from the eyewitness accounts of photographs, saying, oh, this matches that, you know, oh, this is, this is clearly consistent with a long-necked seal, or this is clearly consistent with a, a giant amphibian, or this is consistent with... Tully Monstrum, a 30-centimetre-long carboniferous worm-like organism from Illinois, um, as is famously, famously the case in, in one particular book. So the grey photograph, you have it in some books. They say, ah, oh, look, you can see it's got this wormy, necky bit, and it's got these weird lumps on the side that are consistent with the side organs on this worm. So that's the author, so Halliday, the, the author saying it, so it's a giant Tully Monstrum worm thing. Then you've got other authors saying, oh, look, it looks like a plesiosaur with a long neck and a... You can see the bases of flippers there, and 
there's 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 also a quite popular suggestion i'm sure you will have heard of this uh some people have said that it looks like the head of a dog coming towards you with a stick in its mouth yeah and yeah yeah and once you know this once you know what to look for yeah you you can you can see that or i i can see it. i know some people that can't see it but uh, i'm convinced that is paradolia that is people recognizing uh, a shape yeah. Some priming, I guess, when you're told what it is and what it looks like. Oh, this, yes. this photo in particular is definitely one of the Rorschach tests for Nessie fans. I mean, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it but it doesn't. The swimming dog thing doesn't work because you've only got half the face there. You don't have any trace of the body, and I mean, I I almost feel that you don't need to debunk it or discuss it, but you kind of do because there are some people that take it seriously, and also it's not consistent with the size of the ripples. Now, in discussing this with with Dick Rayner, he pointed out that. This object, we can tell, it's an old black and white photograph, and as I say, it's blurry and double exposed, but it shows a very large, well, a large, very pale, almost white object on the surface of the lock with a long neck. Well, even if you're not looking at the photograph, think about this. What, what big, white, long neck things can you think of that sit high, quite high on the, on the surface of the water? Uh, I, I'm, and I'm absolutely convinced now that it is a swan. Um, Hugh Gray photographed... Uh, as a swan and um with its with its head submerged in a pose that um is not completely typical but is sometimes adopted by by swans i can show photographs that show swans in the the same pose and this explains all the details you can see in the image um the little side knobs that some people have suggested are the limbs or side organs of assorted animals uh, are a perfect match for the ankle joint of a of a bird on the water the pointed end that's opposite the, the end with the long structure the pointed end is absolutely consistent in shape with a swan's tail you can see this junction between the wing feathers and the body feathers which of course you see in birds when they have their wings folded up and um yeah, so I traced over the photograph for the book and tried to draw like exactly what I meant and did a really, really bad job. They got a, the, the publishers got a professional artist to do it, and so we have this nice uh, uh, illustration of um, yeah, what what I, what I think it is. And so they're I common am, to the area then. Yeah, swans? yeah, yeah, yeah. Swans are swans are all over the place <laughs> in the, the British Isles. Can't move for swans, and uh, <laughs> they are f- uh, quite frequently on the. Uh, the service of Loch Ness. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really quite pleased with that as an explanation. And, uh, yeah, I thought uh, the, the, the illustration does a very good job of, uh, exp- of, uh, matching that, uh, pose and makes it very, very, very plausible. I mean, obviously because it's a blurry photo, we'll never know for sure, but it, uh, it looks yeah. like a really nice match. Um, I think so. Always blurry. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be. It has to be a monster photograph. Yeah. <laughs> Although that's not wholly true. I mean, there are a couple of crisp photographs, which uh, uh, the the Tony Shields uh, Muppet photograph is is a nice one, and the O'Connor uh, loaf of bread or inflated plastic bag photograph. That's quite clear as well. But it's, it should also be said this this again isn't well known unless you've looked into this. But but Hugh Gray, as is often the case with the people who record the, these kinds of. Uh, evidence in quotes people that people that encounter uh, record photographs or whatever they generally aren't just people who are just out you know on on a vacation and accident and encounter a monster by surprise they do tend to be people with a bit of a um almost well with, with some background interests in the subjects and and hugh gray had what's been called a 
I think I think the word obsession or something has has been mentioned in connection <laughs> with it. He t- he said he took a. I I think I remember correctly. He um he claimed several sightings prior to this photograph, which of course is not impossible, but it does raise questions. And he also said that this was one of five photographs I think taken at the time, and none of the others have ever been released. Which hmm. uh, this this is circumstantial evidence, of course, sure. but. Uh, but yeah, it casts well, it in a slightly different light. Sending like the Patterson Gimlin. Well, know, I mean, we're talking the, about people who are looking mm. actively looking for these things. Yeah, I mean, that's yes. the greatest coincidence of all. I mean, you've got two people who who were planning to make a docudrama sort of film about hunting for Bigfoot, had yep. written a book about it, included yep. photos, and then actually coincidentally <laughs> got See, the yes. only motion picture of an alleged what Bigfoot. Are, what are the odds? Yeah, and that looks and just not like only that. Picture, right? <laughs> yes, in um, in one of uh, uh, well, in Patterson's book, he includes this illustration, which is a depiction of William Rowe's encounter from the 1950s, which is uh, well, th- th- this has been said by Loxton and Prothero and various other investigators by now, but but the the illustration included in Patterson's book is almost is the perfect storyboarded prototype of what they filmed. At, uh, at Bluff Creek. I think it's a mirror image. I think it's depicted uh, with the animal walking from right to left instead of left to right. But otherwise, the look of the creature and so on. Um, it's quite clear that William Rowe's alleged encounter of, I think, 1955 was heavily inspirational to Patterson's view of what uh, Sasquatch Bigfoot was like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I think the uh, other thing that I found really interesting was when you talked about the Kraken, mm. because you went into a lot of detail about it's not being what people think of when they think of the Kraken. Yeah, yeah, this has been a, a bugbear of mine for a while. And um, again, not original to me. This mostly comes from um, my uh, uh, discussions with Charles Paxton, who's published uh, at least one article on this subject, but you frequently hear whenever the, whenever the kraken is mentioned, you hear people not just people of people sympathetic to cryptozoology. You hear, you, you hear this among people widely. The oh, did you know the kraken is based on the giant squid? So people knew knew the giant squid prior to its official description, and they called it the kraken. The kraken is the giant squid. No, this is categorically not correct the 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 kraken prior to the 1800s is regarded as something quite different it's uh, this weird um horned or antenna bearing island monster thing which doesn't definitely have any characteristics typical of cephalopods of squids or octopuses nor does it have any special features that would link it to arctuthis the the giant squid um and it may be that several different things were combined in uh, creating the the mythology the lore of the the kraken um some people have suggested that it may have been uh, it may involve uh, encounters with large turtles or whales. Uh, it may there may be uh, emergent volcanoes coming out of the sea or floating pumice islands. Undersea volcanoes sometimes produce this these eruptions of, of pumice, which float on the water, look like a uh, a solid island, but it's literally just floating gas-filled rock on the surface of the sea. Um, and also there's this legend of a giant crab, which is uh, from the Scandinavian coast, which is kind of incorporated into the Kraken legend as well. So it's all a bit messy. It's mm. several different stories. Predominantly it's this 
island monster creature, which is which is sometimes said to be polyp-like or starfish-like, or to have horns or antennae that look like trees when it's uh, when it's sitting at the surface. There's these stories about you know sailors landing on one of these islands and then they start a fire. They go catch some game and cut down a tree, and then it turns out that it's a sleeping monster and it sinks and they they all die with the with the sinking <laughs> island. But um, but okay. yeah, somebody must have survived to tell the tale. But <laughs> always, everybody so, died. So why uh, did the the perceptional idea of this creature change so much over time? Uh, yeah, yeah, good, good logical question. Um, uh, P- Pierre Denis de Montfort in the early eighteen uh, hundreds wrote these fabulously. Uh, speculative, fantastic tales about uh, giant octopuses and giant squids, which which now were both known scientifically, um, and uh, said that they were you know terrible, uh, terrific, f- frightening, powerful beasts that could you know grab big ships by the mast and and pull them underwater, and to justify his belief in these giant cephalopods, he said that the kraken of legend. Um, was the same thing and he and he selected the bits of those stories that sound somewhat squid or octopus like and ignored all the rest of the stuff so when mainstream modern cryptozoologists of course most famously bernard hoovermans when they wrote about the uh, kraken legends again and spoke about anecdotes to involving giant squids and giant octopuses in the 1950s onwards they were adopting Denis de Montfort's version of the Kraken. Uh, they weren't going back to the original uh, pre eighteen hundreds stuff. So um, this yeah. happened. Uh, this happened with the chupacabra. I mean, it's turned from you know mm. a humanoid with spines into basically mangy dogs. And for those of us who liked the spiny version, this is ridiculous. But that seems to be the cultural shift. Yeah, I think I think that's ridiculous. I, I don't talk about chupacabras in the book, obviously, but um, I don't really regard it as I don't know. Is it the thing? Oh, well, I was just about to say it's not really part of cryptozoology, but actually now it is because there are researchers who are of the opinion that these weird so-called blue dogs um, are a crypt are some undiscovered canid. They're undiscovered. I mean, even though they've got dead ones and have, their DNA has been analysed and and such. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how that how that made the the leap from your spiny possible grey alien type beast to blue dogs? Very strange. Yes, there's a lot about the claims. It does. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy. UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. 
So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Speaking of the Kraken, uh, do, do you have any thoughts on... Uh, there's a couple of things that always come up when I think about the Kraken, and that is um, a long time ago I saw the Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Well, he did like several series, uh, but mm. they, there was one on sea monsters, and they talked about um, and actually interviewed uh, Lieutenant Cox, uh, a, a British sailor who uh, had actually allegedly been attacked by a giant squid and had sucker marks to prove it. Uh, and then, uh, and there was also a famous attack on the USS Stein by some sort of creature that they think might have been a giant squid. Uh, mm. Any thoughts on those, or is that something you've looked in at all? Yeah, it's, I, I admit it's not something I have looked into that much. But um, but you, what you'll notice is that these descriptions pertain to generic large squid, and in all the discussions of you know what's the identity behind the kraken and this is the, the mystery of the giant squid when people are thinking specifically about Architeuthis, this specific kind of unusual deep water squid that we call the giant squid. Whereas when lay people are talking about, you know, this, this guy who was attacked by a squid and uh, when squids have been been seen to attack, uh, attack again in quotes, uh, attack vessels, they aren't definitely Architeuthis. There are a whole load of, of large squid and even a squid that's two meters long, in total length, including the, uh, the the main tentacles, not the s- super long feeding tentacles, but the the regular arms. Um, yeah, a two meter squid is a frightening, enormous beast if you're in water with it, especially if it's uh, attacking you. So, and it's almost fourteen dollars. Yeah, I, I'm often sceptical of the idea that these actually do pertain to specifically Architeuthis. And what we know of Architeuthis at the moment, uh, uh, it's it's not really shaping up to be the, the kind of, you know, rampant, ship-attacking, human-eating, uh, horrible, powerful monster thing. It seems more of a kind of fairly lazy, slow-moving, sessile thing that so, just yeah. uses, uses its long arm, the, the two long feeding tentacles to, to grab other squid and, and, and small prey. What I think some- I hear you saying is that you endorse the Harryhausen version over the 20,000 Leagues version. <laughs> so, they're both good I, I kind of prefer the 20,000 Leagues version that scene is epic but um, yeah what does the Harryhausen one do I can't remember oh, well they released the Kraken this is from uh, Clash of the Titans oh was... sorry Clash of yeah. the Titans of course yeah yeah so yeah. no problem yeah. you can't remember everything all at once right so <laughs> <laughs> well I've just got a more general question about belief uh, and that is that is there necessarily a connection between belief in land and sea creatures? So, for example, if someone believes in Bigfoot, is it inevitable that they'll believe in the Loch Ness Monster as well? Or might they poo-poo the idea of Loch Ness Monster? Um, mm. No, it's a very good question. And uh, I don't think... I- 
that's one of those questions that someone really should have investigated, and I don't think they have. I mean, what you'll notice is that people that do have uh, a fairly um, strong bias towards the reality of the cryptozoological superstars, they tend to be consistent across the board, in my experience. So people that do think that Yetis and uh, Bigfoots and such are real do tend to be quite sympathetic towards the existence of lake monsters and and sea monsters, and vice versa. And we know this was the case among uh, the... uh, Well, obviously, much of the book discusses the research of uh, Hoovermans and and Ivan Sanderson. And, uh, um, well... I, I specifically say in the book, it's often hard to pin Hoovermans down specifically on what he actually thought, because to be frank, his his writing was often so obtuse. But the fact that he produced this, is it 1986? He published this list of the specific target animals of cryptozoology. It came up with like a list of, I can't remember, it's like a hundred. It's a surprising number. But um, he really came out in that article as not just endorsing the existence of um, beasts from, you know, the the deepest Amazon and tropical southeastern Asia, these things that, you know, even the most skeptical skeptical of us do think that there's a possibility they could exist. He did endorse existence of his nine kinds of sea serpents and the Loch Ness Monster and all the mystery hominids. So, you know, 10 species of potential uh, hominids. Um, so yeah, my my impression is that uh, that it that it that it is linked, and, and then of course that leads to the larger question: is does does a, an interest or a belief in cryptids as potentially real animals link to a larger uh, belief in the stuff around the fringes of cryptozoology, UFOs and the paranormal and such? And uh, we have, on, and I would say on that there's a there's a spectrum. There's many shades of grey from from people who are famously quite um, negative on those things. So Grover Krantz would be an example. Someone would say, no, all that stuff is rubbish and it's irrelevant to what I'm doing, which is just pure zoology, biology. But then on the other hand, you've got people who are completely open-minded to all that stuff. And and in some cases, uh, not only embraced it, but built it. So Ivan Sanderson discussed, mentioned about a thousand times in this book, one of the... Uh, builders of all these concepts about mystery animals is the same guy who's coming up with ideas about you know the bermuda triangle and underwater mystery objects and uh flying saucers and uh ideas about shifting uh what you call it dimensions and all this kind of stuff this, we're talking about the same people so um yeah i think as skeptics we just tend to encounter people with blind spots a lot that they'll believe in UFOs wholeheartedly and then just think ghosts are ridiculous and Bigfoot's mm. ridiculous and that people just pick and choose what they believe in. Yeah, yeah. I th- and I think, I think you've got everything across the board. You do, you do have people who are open-minded. That's the wrong term to use. But who are prepared to endorse everything. At the other, at two at the other extreme, people who have a fairly rational worldview but just have these, yeah, as you say, these blind spots where it's like, mm. yeah, I know that humans incorporate alien DNA. Or I know that Bigfoot actually does exist and awaits discovery or that Loch Ness Monster is, is real. And, and, and indeed, you know, there are there, – it's, again, it's, it's, it's interesting within the community of people that you would regard as, as skeptics. There are still people who are, you know, card-carrying – qualified 
scientists, fully rational people with a realistic worldview, quite responsible and reasonable on many things, but they may still have this uh, small area of this specific thing that they might endorse or believe in. Yeah, I think it's a human trait to have biases. Um, Just in the book, you talk about cryptids and how they're often lumped in with UFOs and ghosts and other paranormal subjects. Um, So do you see a difference between cryptozoology and ufology? Um, And and if they are all lumped together, why do you think that that's so? Yeah, this this is difficult to to really get to the bottom of. I mean, um, uh, I'm a bit worried I might repeat myself in view of what what I've just said, I suppose. But, um, yeah, you you certainly have uh, some people who would reject all of that that other stuff – UFOs and and the and the paranormal and think you know there are there are a list of qualified biologists paleontologists zoologists who've uh, written about cryptozoology and have spe- made point made the point of saying that that this is part of zoology we are we are endorsing the existence of these um, alleged creatures as real flesh and blood animals with an evolutionary history and then. Uh, uh, yeah, at the other end, at the other end, you have people who are linking linking these uh, alleged zoological phenomena with with other phenomena with the, mm. with, the, with the paranormal kind of stuff. Um, and there is that it has been shown. There are some studies showing that there is a link between uh, endorsement of something on the fringes, uh, like belief in ghosts or UFOs, and a belief in things like uh, Loch Ness Monster or, or Bigfoot. There are some studies that do that do endorse this, but uh, but but at the same time, yeah, I mean, you you have you have got you've got people who who do who do reject that stuff. I mean, I can think of I can think of many people I know who are interested in mystery animals and don't and 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 insist that they are only studying zoological phenomena and it's got nothing at all to do with with that other that that crazy stuff. It happens. the the, uh, the 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 whole field is kind of covered up with uh, a spectrum, right? And I, from what I've heard, I've I've never been able to make it to a, an official Bigfoot uh, conference. Although I do, I would like to at some point. That my understanding mm-hmm. is that at those conferences, that the sort of uh, the there's sort of a, a pecking order where you know the people who would consider themselves to be naturalists, you know, would be you know, maybe consider themselves above the people who believe that uh, Bigfoot's, you know, able to become invisible or is from outer space or is hyperdimensional, that sort of thing. Yeah. I I wonder if it's fair to say that, I mean, I'm I'm quite happy to say that I originally became interested in cryptozoology because I really did think that the evidence for some of these creatures was looking pretty good. I mean, I wasn't uh, a proper adult <laughs> at the time, so maybe maybe it's forgivable. But um, I think I think for a lot of people they they do become interested in this because they only see it as you know you you look at the descriptions of Bigfoot or sea monsters uh, in your favourite cryptozoological books and they do sound like rational descriptions of real animals. But what you have to appreciate, and I think we're appreciating this more and more, making more of a big deal of this now, is that um, those are um, the, the, all those all those accounts have been uh, modified. They've been polished. People have chosen the particular accounts they want to cover. I mean, it's it's quite well known among again those of us of a, a skeptical inclination that when people talk about say First Nations law associated with mystery 
human-like non-humans of North America that you read about these accounts that seem to portray the same kind of creature, this like shaggy-furred, uh, human-shaped thing that isn't a human. But the weirder stuff, the, the, the creatures that are sort of more um, half-human uh, or which can phase in and out of reality or which sometimes wear clothes or which sometimes speak and sometimes don't speak and which have special roles in pulling over trees or cannibalizing the dead. You know, that kind of stuff gets downplayed or or even uh, ex- excluded. Well, as I like um, to say, the, uh, the the Bigfoot enthusiast is very likely to cite Native American tales of hairy men but as, as real creatures, but then they exclude talking foxes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder if it is fair to say that, that, okay, well, I think I've made the point already that there are indeed, you know, qualified skeptical scientists who do uh, have a genuine interest in cryptozoological mysteries and have investigated them. And, and indeed, the history of cryptozoological, uh, well, the, the research in the Yeti and, 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 and Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster shows that there always have been qualified um, ivory tower scientists. I'm being completely sarcastic in using that term, but, you know, proper scientists, qualified scientists, supposedly with jobs at stake and so on. There have been people like that right from the start who have invested a lot of their own time and sometimes their reputation, money and, and such in investigating these these stories. So it's not true that that, uh, that sceptical scientists haven't been involved. They, they always have been involved. However, in terms of where we are now, I wonder if it's true to say that the people who do really promote the, 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 the I'm talking about here about the scientists, not not just kind of you know authors or whatever, but 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 people who you would identify as someone who's meant to be a proper critical thinker. Those of them that do have outspoken opinions on uh, given mystery creatures, um, do they have indications from their body of published work? or their statements on subjects, are there indications that they do have these weird blind spots? And I, I'm thinking specifically of an author called uh, Henry Bauer, who's a qualified scientist who has written a book on uh, Loch Ness. And, um, and I've, I've always been surprised at the fact that he seems to be you know, a proper qualified scientist and knows what he's talking about and uh, seems to be quite outspoken on the reality of the Loch Ness Monster, and, and he's very critical in his book of critics of the Loch Ness Monster evidence. Um, well, I've been interested to discover recently that he's a strong critic of uh, AIDS, HIV. He doesn't think that AIDS is linked to HIV. Now, we're not going to start discussing that, but the, how, how do I put it politely? I mean, basically, alarm bells are ringing. It's It's mm. kind of like... Uh, this this indicates that you, the way this individual is is approaching scientific subjects is is different from that of uh, the vast majority of us. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I, I, yeah we we've done a lot of. Uh, there's been a lot of skeptical research and scientific research and psychological research into uh, the fact that uh, being well educated and being intelligent is not proof against. Uh, uh, fringe thinking. In fact, it seems mm. like some really intelligent people go down that rabbit hole really far. So, mm. yeah, I think it's the human condition again. Yeah. So, I, I guess the good news is that uh, uh, peer review and that sort of thing uh, can 
can help sort of weed that out. Although uh, it's a process, and I've, we'll probably that's another show that we'll be doing this season. If we have seasons, I guess we're starting the the, the over one hundred season. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. There's a lot of topics I want to go back and look at. One of them has to do with uh, the scientific process and sort of skepticism 101. Uh, mm. Because uh, science is self-correcting, but it has to be corrected, right? So, yeah, 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 yeah. I make the point in the book that I that uh, in agreement with what I've just said, there always have been skeptical scientists, trained critical thinkers who have endorsed uh, the existence of monsters or, or have been very interested in it or involved in it. But what's really notable is the number of them has substantially decreased over time. So today, you know, there, yeah, there are still, like I say, qualified people in universities and museums and so on who are prepared to consider or discuss Bigfoot, Loch Ness monsters, sea monsters uh, and, and others and other uh, monsters and other cryptids. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the number of them has definitely decreased, decreased because, sad to say, the, the evidence just, just hasn't come in. And more and more people have begun to appreciate and have discussed the fact that, uh, well, cryptozoology is, is culture. We're talking about yeah. uh, ingrained kind of archetypes that we all, not we all, but most of us kind of carry with us in our minds. And I think that explains why we say we see some of the things we do. Well, the good news is uh, properly skeptical people are always prepared to change their opinion in in, in face of uh, convincing evidence. So mm -hmm. uh, we're always just one Bigfoot corpse away from, you know, endorsing Bigfoot, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a proper Bigfoot corpse, not just a frozen suit filled with possum guts. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Not naming names. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, bring it on. I, I've, I've been uh, interested in every single one of these claims of uh, Bigfoot DNA or whatever. I was, uh, I was uh, a reviewer for the Melba Ketchum study, and uh, I'm not a geneticist, so it was like, what, tell me, you know, talking to the geneticist, what do these DNA uh, profiles actually actually mean? Is, is the, are they right? Is there the core of a – is there a nugget of truth in here? Is there really some unknown hybrid uh, – hominin and uh no <laughs> no it really isn't it really isn't okay you're yeah it's uh i was surprised how how uh, how far ketchum and her colleagues took the fight but that that's been done to death online hasn't it uh, a, a bit a bit yeah. and it's good that you kept an open mind throughout it this is a pet peeve of mine There's, there seems to be a problem of classifying monsters because you get all kinds of sea creatures becoming sea serpents, and then all kinds of hairy hominids become Bigfoot. Despite what, if you listen to the really detailed descriptions, there's big uh, differences in their morphology, the way they're being described. So as an actual trained uh, anatomist to a degree, like uh, or a degreed anatomist, however you want to look at it, uh, mm -hmm. how, how, do, <laughs> how do you approach discrepancies like this? Um, I've never known how to approach the discrepancies apart from put it all down to the fact that people are not describing the same organisms. I think that's that's clear. That's clear. So, in discussions of uh, lake monster and sea monster identifications, um, think think of one specific case where people can only reasonably describing a single undiscovered species. And I'm thinking of Lake Champlain, Loch Ness, you know, there's Loch Ness, Lake Champlain, whatever, they're not going to be home to 10 different species of large undiscovered animals, okay? If, if they're going to be home to 
an un- undiscovered species, it's going to be one. I think that's a fairly reasonable uh, thing to say, even among... Well, I was going to say even among the most um, open-minded of uh, believers, but that's not true because I've learned that some of them are prepared to endorse the possibility of multiple species living along this. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, the the sheer diversity of accounts. I mean, the, the, all the famous uh, lakes that uh, that supposedly are home to lake monsters. You have your upturned boat monster. You have your long neck monster. You have your giant fish monster. You have things with two humps, three humps, five humps, and variants of humps. But then even more subtle things, like when people encounter the creatures close up, um, that there are... there are uh, Lake Champlain, there's a couple of cases where people said they've actually had physical contact with Champ. Some cases they say, oh, it, it was a squidgy, slimy animal with a smooth skin. And you think, well, that sounds reasonable. That's consistent with it being a giant fish or an amphibian or even a big whale thing. But then you have other people saying, oh, I saw it close up and its skin was was rough and covered in big scales and gnarly. And and it's like, well, you can't have both. And then you have some people saying, oh, I saw it had a, a, a fluked tail with distinct, you know, whale-like tail flukes. And well, again, that sounds reasonable. But then someone else will describe something completely different. Oh, it had a serrated dragon-like, dragon-like tail. And there are so many of these discrepancies. Uh, heads, you know, people talk about ears and horns on the heads of these things and whiskers. And other people saying there, are, there is none of that stuff. They other people from the in the same places. So they see a small circular head with tiny eyes you just you cannot reconcile these these discrepancies you cannot account for they cannot be descriptions of the same the same one species so that's always been a problem uh, and the the only explanation can be that people are seeing or encountering multiple different phenomena multiple mm-hmm. different things and describing them in different ways and uh you know obviously not necessarily doing a good job of describing them that's a big part of the issue here how reliable people are as witnesses and data recallers that's something i just i discuss a bit in the book but um uh, yeah i think the take-home message is people are not seeing the same thing and it's consistent with the fact that there isn't there are not single undiscovered species at the bottoms of these accounts and you could say the same you could say the same for your classic, your, your Bigfoot accounts and sea monster accounts. They're so diverse. Um, so the, the only way people can account for this, people as in, again, sort of pro-believer uh, cryptozoologists, is they come up with these multi-species models. So let's now think about Bigfoot-type creatures in North America. This enormous diversity, this range of coat colors and heights and foot morphologies and Things that aren't discussed that much in the books, like whether it had a tail or not, or, or the size of its teeth, or whether it had pointy ears or human-like ears. Um, the only way you can account for those is if you're going to have multiple undiscovered species. And by that point, if you're seriously proposing that, uh, well, I mean, Grover Krantz said that he knew that the, proposing that would really turn the whole field into a laughing stock. That really is not a viable option. Maybe we can just about accept the possibility of there being one undiscovered large primate in the remote parts of North America. But the idea that there might be three, four, five, six belonging to multiple different lineages with distinct biogeographical histories and occurring across the whole of North America, from Florida to New York to British Columbia and everywhere else, no. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good to be open-minded, 
but not so open-minded that your brains fall out, as as as, is, as <laughs> uh-huh. the saying goes. So uh, so yeah, I, I I do not think there's a single tidy uh, zoological anatomical solution to these phenomena. That was a great answer. <laughs> yeah, it's a very long-winded answer. Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> nightmare to do a typology of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that, that that'd be good. I, well, well. If you've if you've read the book, <laughs> you'll, 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 I bet what you have, of course. I make this. I try and make this point that this isn't okay. So we can say they're probably really. Uh, it's unfortunate. There really isn't a large undiscovered hominid in North America. There really isn't a Loch Ness monster. There really aren't sea monsters. To, for us to discover but this isn't a bad thing this is still teaching us something that's quite incredible about about us about the way we work about the way we perceive and imagine the natural world and then about the way we relate to it just the way we describe it to others how we describe our perceptions and i think that you think how ubiquitous and and ingrained all these ideas are now i mean how many times have people demonstrated that there isn't a Loch Ness monster? It's been, and the same for some of the other superstar cryptids. It's now been so, it's almost tedious how many times people have come up with good evidence demonstrating that there's a lack of good evidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, so why then does this belief persist? It's, it's like these things, these concepts are hardwired. They are stuck there in our consciousness. And when we go to a lake, say a spooky, dark, deep lake, which could potentially be dangerous to us, uh, particularly to when, us when we're young, particularly to kids, I think, and you can say the same for dark forests, I think this is a seriously important sociological slash psychological event here. The fact that the fact that we are programmed to imagine or perceive creatures of a s- semi-consistent form, um, large, uh, smooth-backed creatures in dark water that could be dangerous, human humanoid creatures in dark forests and mountains, and uh, they're, they're, I'm not really aware of. Well, there's there's a few studies that have been done on on how this is actually working, how people are perceiving the creatures they are describing. I mentioned Charles Paxson. Charles Paxson is doing work of this kind. He has a new study coming out in a couple of weeks on this, actually. But, um, yeah, I think this is an interesting thing here, and I kind of think it should be studied. So you think uh, they're kind of based in social conditioning, in a sense, and, and sort of cautionary tales? Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's a, there's a list of possible explanations um, for, for this, if, if, it is, if it is a thing, and I kind of suspect it is. And, um, well, in, in terms of seeing humanoid uh, uh, creatures, I mean, I think we've probably already got an explanation for that in that we, we know that we humans are, pro- probably, pro- probably as is the case for all animals, we're programmed to look for other humans right we see shapes we see we see his faces where there are no faces and we also see the human profile um you know it's quite common for children to describe seeing figures standing in their their bedroom at night that kind of thing i I think that's a that's a a pre-programmed part of, of being a social animal looking for other humans but then there's this really fascinating idea which has been discussed a few times and uh I, I, I don't. I, I should look into this. I don't know what, what what research has been done on done on this, but 
are some of the creatures that people say they see is our expectation that they should be there is that a, a kind of um deeply ingrained kind of evolutionarily advantageous thing that, that that has been with us throughout history so as animals that have always had to go to water to collect water to to drink we have always had to contend with animals like you know crocodiles and potentially big predatory snakes and giant fish and so on uh, is this does this serve as a hypothesis to it to explain why we have a fear of big lurking water monsters mm-hmm. um and I, I have read arguments where people have proposed that that the classic mystery creatures that, um, funnily enough, this is in a book by Janet and Colin Board called Alien Animals, which is very much of the kind of paranormal side of things. But they propose that the main types of creatures that people claim to see around the world, giant bird-like creatures, giant human-like Bigfoot-type creatures, big predatory cats, water monsters, uh, they say that these are all the sorts of things that would have been dangerous to our ancestors. Not, I don't mean ancestral homo sapiens. I mean, you know, going way back throughout the whole of history, uh, primates throughout history have been preyed on by big reptiles and big birds and big predatory cats. And uh, it's a real stretch to suggest that we could have some kind of evolutionary uh, some like some deep time knowledge that's been passed on over millions of years. I think that is extremely uh, well. I, I, I don't think it's that likely. When I've spoken to um, psychologists, they evolutionary psychologists, they say they say nah, nah. We would just we don't think memories sort of hang around that they're not transferred that way, N- not from culture to culture, let alone from species to species. So it could be nonsense. But on the other hand, it's kind of tempting to think there's something in it. Why do we report the same, the certain kinds of monsters that, that yeah. we do? Or, or am I underselling our artistic ability to just imagine that, well, we know about reptiles like lizards and crocodiles, so wouldn't people always have imagined that there were like 50-foot versions of those things? And mm-hmm. we kn- mm. say, There may be uh, uh, neurological explanations that don't require that information to be transferred genetically. Um, mm. So the, the the idea, what I'm thinking about in particular is um, in your brain, from what from not, I've read a lot about this, but uh, you, I think it was in a book by Ramachandran, uh, he was talking about people who have damage to their brain and it they were asked to draw flowers. And so despite having years and years of experience with particular kinds of flowers, they were only able to draw like a generic kind of flower right after the brain damage it's like mm. they knew what they were drawing but they couldn't it was like they were drawing a, a more of a class of flowers rather than yeah, the, the flower the, archetype right yeah, yeah. and so yeah. It, it's possible that like there's sort of a neurological i don't i'm going to say the word structure i don't mean that like there's an organ in your brain but i mean that there was sort mm. of a uh a, a, a saved concept that represented the class of flower and that if they were going to recognize something to be a flower, it would refer to that first before determining the specific type, right? Yeah. And if that's the case, then the making some of those mistakes may be tied to that sort of uh, class uh, misappropriate use. So I like the, the one you're talking about uh, for like shapes of a humanoid at the foot of the bed, that kind of thing. Uh, that seems to be like a class uh, identification problem to me, like turning shadows into a humanoid shape. But we'll we'll actually be talking about that in our Shadow People episode, which will be coming Ooh. this season. So I don't <laughs> want to spoil everything with my rambling. 
anyway. <laughs> well, I guess uh, um, we've got a final couple of questions. Um, if we can take a few more minutes of your time. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. So you say in the book that we shouldn't doubt that there are still new species which are awaiting discovery. So in your opinion, what kinds of creatures are we likely to find and will any of these match the creatures which are discussed in the cryptozoological literature? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, the the, the get-out clause on which undiscovered things are there to find is that the, there are almost definitely new large marine animals to find. Uh, I don't think anybody really doubts this. So we can expect a small number of large chondrichthyan fishes, uh, relatives of sharks and rays, and of bony fishes. Uh, but, yeah, these animals, they're, they're not going to be radically different things. They're going to be fairly similar to members. They're going to be members of groups we already know about. They're going to be new kind of deep-sea dogfishes and members of the oarfish family and deep-sea rays, that kind of thing. And, and even one or two species of cetaceans. There's, I can tell you that there is one new species of beaked whale, which is uh, currently in description. So we, we know of at least another whale to add to add to the list in terms of terrestrial animals um i think it's looking plausible that there are going to be one or two more kind of you know hoofed mammals from tropical southeastern asia um uh, lo- lo- i mean you know large rodents <laughs> uh, new monkeys uh i i don't think that it's completely implausible that the orang pendek is for real that people might actually still have a, a new ape from uh, sumatra to to discover i don't think that's uh, that's certainly far more plausible than virtually all the other mystery uh, hominids from from around the world i'm sorry but, did, uh, did you just endorse the rous i'm sorry <laughs> The what? <laughs> the rodents of unusual size. From, from I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Sounds <laughs> like another show that, too. Yeah. Well, in um, in in Vietnam, in uh, recent years, people have discovered Lao Nasties, the Kalnzu. This uh, this like. Oh, I don't know. It's about uh, something like total length seventy centimeters. A pretty big uh, rodent of unusual size. So there's there's a couple of things that are going to be discovered like that. But uh, but yeah. These animals are very interesting to those of us interested in rodents and unusual sharks and weird, obscure whales. And with the exception of Orang Pendek, which I'm not necessarily endorsing, I'm just saying I'm still on the fence on that one. Um, yeah, none of these are classic cryptids. And uh, so uh, it's, it's looking like there is, not, there is not the evidence that we really are going to discover yeah, lake monsters and 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 Hoovermans is sea serpents and the classic mm-hmm. crypto hominids of the cryptozoological literature. So, so yeah, new animals to find. I think there's a few to come. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. This is a monster talk exclusive. As I sit here now, I have the skull of what's almost certainly a new species of uh, South American deer sat on the, on the desk here, which is uh, oh. a, a living species, a member of the Mazama genus, a kind of deer called a brocket. So I think there's animals like that that are, yeah, due to be published. But, okay, um, but, but not the yeah. superstar cryptids, you call them. Alas, yeah, alas not. <laughs> it's, it's a not great phrase. <laughs> uh, well, I, uh, I, I hope you think it's appropriate. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I figure there's lots of cryptids. But you can't call, call all of them superstars. I mean, the Mongolian no. deathworm. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm just waiting to see if scripted sticks. I like that. Scripted. <laughs> well, yeah, we're going to have to make it stick. We're going to have to use it. Get it out there. 
Yeah. All right. Well, so this is a repeat for you. Uh, as you know, we like to end our interview with what's your favorite monster. So you don't have to stick to what you said before, but currently, what's your favorite monster? What did I say before? I don't, I don't, I don't listen to the show. You tell show. us. <laughs> uh, and it's allowed to be from the world of fiction and reality and everything, yeah? Anything. Yeah, well, it's Godzilla, yeah. Oh, that's probably what you said before. <laughs> oh, sorry, well, okay, King Ghidorah then. No, uh, no, 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 that's good. So I'm, I'm excited to hear that I, I heard Toho's making a new version in their line, a sequel yeah. to... Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Final Wars. So yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, the rumors are true. Uh, there's some some pictures online already. I think what's killing me is there's two teaser trailers: one for uh, Ultraman and one for a Gamera sequel. Uh, and uh, wow. apparently, that neither one of them is uh, uh, like funded as far as I can tell. But both of them look like they could be fantastic. So mm-hmm. have you seen That's the Ultraman true. one? Yeah, I have. Okay, yeah. yeah. yeah uh, the Gamera one doesn't look quite as polished, but uh, I, I, both of them are basically lobbying to make it a real product. So I, I hope they succeed. My son will be so happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Yeah. Anyway, uh, thanks again for coming to Monster Talk. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, Darren. Well, nice to speak with you again. Yeah, yeah, you too. I enjoyed it. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and together with Karen Stolzno, you heard us interview Dr. Darren Nash about his latest book, a volume focusing on cryptozoology called Hunting Monsters. You can find a link to the book and to Darren's blog and his own podcast in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Monster Talk has been on break for me to work on my own book research, and while it will probably be autumn of 2016 before I even finish my first draft, I've really enjoyed all this research time. The book I'm working on is about technology, so I've been immersed in the history of many inventions and the creative process. I think it's going to be a fun and informative work when I finish it. We've already got some great interviews recorded for this new year of Monster Talk, including a long-awaited episode on giant snakes. Topics including shadow people, black-eyed kids, X-Files, aliens, UFOs, and a little bit of Skepticism 101 are all in the works for this year. I hope you'll stick around for these and many more topics. We're also going to be a featured podcast for the new Google Play podcast feed. I'm not sure what the release date is for that feature, but we're excited to be a part of it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. And if you hated this episode, please share it with your enemies. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed on this show are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. Monster Talk's theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks for listening. For more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.